Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there are Bibles kind of sprinkled under the, uh, under the chairs. You can grab one and, and turn to Luke chapter 22. You'll want to follow along as, uh, as we look through this passage. There's quite a lot in there. And um, we're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper today. So uh, it kind of goes well with having a baptism in the church. There, there are two sacraments. There's uh, uh, baptism which uh, is the initial kind of rite of entry into God's people, and then the Lord's Supper, which is the renewing uh, um, uh, sacrament for God's people. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. So it's kind of uh, uh, worked out nicely today uh, that, we, that we get to see both sacraments in our, in our service today. This is uh, Luke chapter 22. Uh, we're starting in verse 1, and then we're going to go uh, to ver- all the way to verse 30. So uh, this is God's... Word to you because you are his children. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, that's Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room uh, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a, a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined a table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, uh, uh, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and uh, those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves." You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Let's pray together. 
Our Lord, we ask that you would be our teacher. Help us to understand uh, all the things that are in your words, the mysteries that are there. Send your spirit to open our minds, enlighten our minds, open our hearts, that you could speak to us and transform us and change us and draw us near to you, that we would love our Lord more. And uh, we thank you for the Lord's table, that you do commune with us. You meet with us. You assure us that we are yours. And uh, so we thank you for your great love, and we ask that you would communicate it to us now uh, through your holy word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this, this past week, I was, I was down in uh, a presbytery uh, this last week uh, down in Seattle, and before that, I was down in Portland, and uh, there's a big bo- bookstore called Powell's down in, uh, it's the biggest used bookstore I've ever been in. And I, I, started, I picked up a book called Outliers, which is by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, came out a few years ago. Uh, it's about, you know, why, why are certain people uh, unusually successful at, at different things? And I was reading the introduction while I was sitting in the used bookstore, and it told the story about uh, a little um, Italian immigrant town in, uh, in Pennsylvania called Rosetto. And, uh, and in re- this is in the mid-20th century, uh, there was a doctor who lived near the town, and he would see all kinds of people in the town, and he, f- and he noticed this trend that none of the men in this town were dying of heart disease or, or getting sick. or uh, heart, The rate of heart disease was, seemed very low, and so they researched it, and they found out that uh, the levels of heart disease were half the averages in the rest of the country in this one little town. And so they began to kind of investigate and try to discover, you know, what's... Why, why is this the case in this town? And so they said, well, you know, maybe it's because they came from Italy and they had this better diet and they don't eat like us Americans, all this greasy food. And it turned out that 41% of their diet uh, came from fat. Um, it was extremely, they had a high rate of obesity. And uh, so they didn't eat well. They smoked a lot. Um, they're heavy people. And so they said, well, maybe it's their genetics. You know, maybe we'll look into their genetics. Maybe this is just a, a you know, a hearty uh, group of Italians that somewhere in their genetics that keeps them from heart disease, and so uh, they went and they looked in other parts of the country to, for people who were from this region in Italy. They didn't have this, uh, this resistance to heart disease either, so it wasn't, it wasn't their genetics. And so they said, well, it must be something about the environment, the climate in Rosetto, in this part of, of, of Pennsylvania that must be protecting them. So they went to the, you know, just towns a couple miles away to see if they had the same thing, no heart disease. And uh, they didn't have this protection either. They didn't have this health. And so these scientists, they start walking through the town, and they're just looking at the town. It's, they're like, it's something about this town. And the thing they found was that uh, everyone was kind of greeting one another, and they'd invite each other in. You know, they'd stop and invite each other in for a little snack while they're walking through the town. And they shared meals together, and they had all kinds of meals in their backyards together. And uh, the, the first impression they had of this town was that there were three generations of people that were sharing meals together. And as they were asking this question, what is keeping these people healthy, there was, it wasn't a biological answer. The answer was community. <laughs> of course, when they presented this to the you know, scientific community, uh, this was not regarded as a very scientific answer, but this was the only explanation. It was they shared meals together. And it was actually affecting their bodies. And uh, it's very close to what uh, Michael Pollan, who's kind of been the, written quite a bit about food in the last decade, in his book of, uh, in Defense of Food, he says this, We forget that historically people have eaten for a great 
many reasons other than biological necessity. Food is also about pleasure, about community, about family and spirituality, and our relationship to the natural world and about expressing our identity. As long as humans have been taking meals together, eating has been as much about culture as, as it has been about biology. And what you know, Gladwell and Poland are both kind of tapping into is that when you share a meal together, there is something deeply mysterious and profound that is happening in that action that's not just about caloric intake. <laughs> something strange and mysterious is happening there. And, uh, you know, over the last three years, we've been looking through uh, the Gospel of Luke kind of on and off. And one of the things, uh, you know, you, I probably picked this up because I've been teaching through it. But uh, one of the things that's a common theme throughout the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus' life and ministry was about sharing meals with people. And so, you know, Luke starts way back with, you know, in his childhood, and it kind of races ahead to his ministry, and it goes through three years of his ministry pretty quickly. And then the last few months of Jesus' life where he's training his disciples, uh, Luke spends a lot of time on that, on uh, describing what happens in those months. And now we're coming to the last 24 hours of Jesus' life where he's about to go to the cross, and he's been sharing meals with sinners. He's been sharing, uh, uh, you know, feeding the 5,000, doing all kinds of things. And we come to the last 24 hours of his life, and there's this powerful verse in verse 15, this powerful thing that Jesus says. Look what he says. The night before he dies, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Um, as Jesus is about to do his great work on the cross, the thing that he longs for is to eat a meal with his friends. And in doing that, he actually transforms this meal, and it forever becomes uh, the defining mark of the Christian community, is that they come together and they share this meal together, the Lord's Supper, that the, now the church has been doing for 2,000 years. Um, and which is here, you know, in our service, I don't know if you've noticed this, but our service kind of follows a pattern where, uh, you know, at the very beginning, we confess our sin and we tell God, you know, we're sinners and we don't deserve to be in your presence. And God forgives us and then he speaks to us. And then as, we come, as the service comes along, we come closer and closer to God until you walk forward and you actually eat with him at his table. That's the whole goal and climax of our service is that Jesus wants to eat a meal with us. And uh, so uh, what I want to do this morning is we're going to look at this passage and talk about the significance of this simple little meal with the bread and the wine, uh, the Lord's Supper. What does it mean? What are the qualities of it? And that this is what he's put at the heart of our spirituality is eating together, eating with Jesus, <laughs> you know, simple bread and simple wine. And actually, I'm going to, I'm going to unpack a six, I, I know it sounds like a six pointer. What, should I use a different word? Six, uh, six little observations. Um, as we go through this passage, um, about what, what this table means, what it does. And this passage is loaded uh, with, with beauty and richness. And I hope that we you come to see why it's been important for me that we take this supper every, every Sunday. Why this is uh, more important than the sermon, maybe, is coming to this table. So uh, six things that we're going to look at together. And um, the first one is this, that... Um, the Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of the Passover. The first thing to understand about what this meal is, is very important, is that it's a fulfillment of the Passover. And you see that there in verse 7, where it says, they came, uh, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb 
had to be sacrificed, which Luke is giving us a little clue to what's happening, about to happen in Jesus' life. Jesus is going to become the lamb who was sacrificed. He's going to be the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Um, and he says, so Jesus sent uh, Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And so uh, they, these disciples go and they prepare this upper room where they make this Passover meal together. And uh, what Jesus does when he makes this meal, the Lord's Supper, one of the things we have to understand, those elements that he picked up when he said, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood shed for you, that food that he was using was actually the Passover meal. So he was taking the Passover meal and he was redefining it and centering it around him. So the Passover meal, if, if you don't uh, know the story of the Bible, back in the book of Exodus... Uh, God's people, they were slaves in, in Egypt, and God was telling Pharaoh, let my people go, set them free, they're my children, uh, I want them to come, and actually, what did he, you know what the, he wanted them to go do with him? <laughs> let them out into the desert so they can have a feast, so they can eat with me. And, uh, and Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let them go, and so these plagues come upon Pharaoh, and the final plague is that all the firstborn in Egypt were... Uh, would be killed on this night. And on that night, uh, Israel would be set free and they'd be delivered from their slavery. And so uh, what God told them to do on the night before their deliverance, they had a feast, they had a meal together and they'd kill this sacrificial lamb and, and they'd uh, put blood on the doorpost of their house. And when the angel of death came into Egypt and was gonna kill the firstborn, uh, the angel of death would pass over the houses that had the mark on the doorpost. And, uh, you know, actually it's very similar to what Jesus' blood does for us, right? The wrath of God fell on Jesus, and when we're washed in the blood of Jesus, God's wrath passes over us. That's why Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. And so uh, they ate this meal, and on the following, the following morning, uh, Pharaoh says, get out of here. I don't want you, get out of Egypt, fine, you can go, that was the last straw, and they leave. And so this is the meal that they eat on the eve of their deliverance. And so here's Jesus, the night before he's going to uh, go to the cross uh, for our deliverance, for the new exodus, where he's not going to save us out of save, uh, slavery, but he's going to save us from, uh, out of slavery to sin. And he's going to deliver us. And, um, and so uh, one of the things that's important to understand is these parallels between the Passover in the Old Testament and the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. They're paralleled. And let me just tell you a few ways that they're paralleled. First of all, um, in the sense that they're a sacrament. Now, um, in the Old Testament, you had two sacraments, circumcision and the, and, uh, the Passover. So uh, when someone became one of God's people, when they became an Israelite, they were circumcised. It was the thing that happened in the beginning. And then once they were circumcised, they were allowed to eat the Passover. And then the Passover was a repeated meal that they would have every year to remind themselves, this is who we are. We were the people that were delivered out of Egypt. And they kind of uh, reenact the whole story. So there's these two sacraments. And now in the New Testament, God's given us two sacraments, baptism, which happens at the beginning of our, uh, of our spiritual life. When God counts us as one of his people, we're baptized. It only happens once. Circumcision only happens once. <laughs> um, Baptism only happens once, and then we repeat this meal over and over, and this thing is how God, this meal is how God reminds us of our identity that we're his children, and he tells us over and over again, I, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you, I died for you, I've delivered you, and he says it to us over and over again, and so when you come to the New Testament, uh, Paul in Colossians 2, he says that you were circumcised in Christ through your baptism. 
your baptism is how you were marked and how you were brought into the people of God. And, uh, and then here we see in Luke that the Passover, Jesus has now transformed the Passover into the Lord's Supper. So there are these parallels. Now, I'll tell you why this is actually kind of important for us as a church. Um, if, if you're new here, uh, our church has just gone through a transition where we've just appointed uh, four elders into our church. So now I'm not the only elder in our church. We have a, a session of elders who kind of uh, make decisions about this church. And one of the, the first topics that came up for us was talking about the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And um, one of the things, uh, if you've been worshiping with us, you know that when I do the Lord's Supper, I say that this is a meal for if you believe in Jesus, then this is a meal for you. The requirement is, is to believe. But I, as we've been studying about the Lord's Supper and the Passover, and this is something that I've been learning and growing in, is that really the, the, what you see in the Passover is first you get circumcised, and then you come to the, come to the, uh, then you eat the Passover. And that it's really the same way with baptism and, and the Lord's Supper, that you should be baptized first. It's not just you believe, but you believe and you're baptized, and then you come to the Lord's Supper. And so actually you'll notice when we have the Lord's Supper, that's something I'm going to say uh, today, is that this is a meal for those who are baptized and believe. And, you know, someone might say, that's, is that necessary? I mean, <laughs> does it make a big difference if someone uh, comes to the table? Well, um, you know, if, if you come to the table and, and you weren't baptized uh, so far, it's not the end of the world. Uh, but one of the things, uh, besides the fact that, that this is really the ordering that the Bible puts in place, and this is actually what the church has been doing for 2,000 years, it says you should be baptized before you come to the Lord's table. I think there's another uh, reason to understand it, is because not only is, is the Passover and the Lord's Supper a sacrament, but it's a covenantal meal. It's a covenant meal. Now, what do I, what do I mean by that? The, um, one of the ways that we understand, the easiest ways for us to understand a covenant relationship, which is how the Bible describes our relationship to God, is like a marriage. And one of the things that Christians have kind of oddly said throughout history is you should always get married before you make love. For some strange reason, even if you fall in love, even if you're sure this is the person you're going to marry, you need to have the wedding first, and then, uh, and then you can together in your union, and it's a little bit like this relationship. You have a wedding day, you only do that once, and then you have this repeated renewal of the wedding day of where you commune together, you know, <laughs> however you want to say it. Uh, you become one flesh, you know, I, not to draw this illustration out too much, but we're becoming one flesh with Jesus in the Lord's Supper, right? And, and why have Christians said that? Why have Christians said it's so important that you get married before, uh, before you enter into the sexual union. Why do they say that? It's because your emotions, your feelings are going to come and go. If you just base it on your love and your subjective emotions say, well, I love you. I want to come together. Those are going to come and go. They're not going to maintain a relationship. You need the vows. You need the wedding day. You need the wedding ring that says, I'm going to be with you no matter what. It's objective. And it's the same thing happens in the churches. We come in and we say, oh, I love Jesus. I, wanna, I love Jesus. I want to follow him. I, wanna be, I want him in my life. And, uh, and then later, we're not feeling that. And then we say, well, did I really believe it? Was I really a Christian? Uh, and, and then maybe am I really one of God's people? Have I, has my heart really been changed? It's very subjective. But when we put baptism, we say, I was baptized. I was married to Jesus. It's objective. And that's not changing. And so uh, I think it's important. This is one of the things that I actually think that 
putting a high emphasis on baptism frees us to not follow our emotions, but follow the constancy of God's promises. And God's say, God's promises don't change. My baptism doesn't change. Until the church kicks me out, <laughs> I'm, I'm one of Jesus' people, and it gives us security, okay? So that's the first point of six, okay? How are we doing? Uh, we're going to... Uh, they're not all that long. Okay, that was the first one. Okay, the first thing about the Lord's Supper is that, uh, is that it is the fulfillment of the Passover, and that teaches us a lot about what this means. It's a covenant meal. It's a sacrament. Okay? But second, this will be a short one to convince you that they're not all going to be that long. The second thing is that the Lord's Supper is about the presence of Jesus, is that Jesus is present with us in the meal. Uh, uh, you know, in... Throughout church history, this has been one of the big debates in church history. You know, where is Jesus in the meal? You know, he says, this is my body broken for you. Is that really his body? And uh, is this really his blood? You know, that's kind of the Catholic view is that uh, when the priest says the words that I say, the words of institution, this is Christ's body, that it actually transforms in the actual body. And you're actually eating the body of Christ and drinking drinking his blood. And uh, during the Reformation, there was this big shift the other way uh, where... uh, one, uh, one of the reformers, Zwingli, said, no, 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 no. Listen, Jesus said it's just a remembrance, okay? It's just bread, it's just wine, and we're just remembering what Jesus did for us, okay? There, there's nothing, Jesus isn't present in this actual meal. It's really bread and wine. He's just helping our minds to remember. But um, our view in this church actually is with John Calvin, which I think he has the most nuanced view where he says that, um, that in this meal, Jesus is really present by the Holy Spirit. He's a, a spiritual presence. The Holy Spirit actually brings us into Jesus' presence so that we're actually eating with him and feasting on him spiritually and that he's building up our faith. And I think the fact that the importance of Jesus' presence is in that verse that I read for you at the beginning in verse 15 where Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And in the end of the end of Matthew, that's what Jesus also says. He says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And one of the great hopes of this is that we're actually communing with Jesus. Jesus is present. This little church up in Bellingham, you know, however tens of thousands of miles from, uh, from Jerusalem where he was, he's with us in this community as we take communion, that we're actually uh, communing with Jesus. So secondly, the, uh, the Lord's Supper, it's about fulfillment of the Passover. It's about the presence of Jesus. Third, the Lord's Supper is a visible gospel. It's a visible gospel. I think this is a really powerful description of of what this is. Um, Look again at verse 19. Jesus says this, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, uh, saying, uh, this is the cup that is poured out for you. Uh, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And what's interesting here is Jesus is taking these elements, these physical elements that you can see and that you can taste and you can touch, and he's saying, here's the gospel. Here, you know, what's the gospel? Jesus' life for ours, right? Jesus giving his life for ours, that we'd be forgiven, that we'd be embraced. Uh, substitution. He's saying, here it is. Here's my body broken for you. See it. Drink the cup. Taste it. Not just with your brain, not just with your ears, but with, uh, with your eyes and with your, with your mouth. All your senses I want involved in communicating the gospel to you. And um, I think that uh, that's a visible gospel. 
And, uh, you know, one of the things you'll notice when we take communion in our church, uh, that a lot of young children come and take communion with us, which isn't necessarily normal in, in uh, churches around the world, that young children are allowed to come to the, uh, come to the meal. And, and I should mention to you, you know, for those of you who are new, uh, if you see kids coming, these are kids who are, who've been baptized, and, and they actually, they meet with me, and we give them an opportunity to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I believe I'm a sinner, and I want to be with him forever. And then they're admitted to the table when they uh, meet with, with me or with an elder. And uh, one of the reasons why we want them uh, to be coming early is because this is a visible gospel. You know, many kids, you know, five-year-olds sitting in our church, they've, you know, so far what I've said in this sermon, it's, maybe it's over your head what I'm saying. I mean, it's, but definitely over their head of, uh, I'm not understanding everything you're saying. I can't necessarily sing along with all the songs. I can't understand the prayers. Um, and yet here's something that they can see and understand. Uh, Christ's body broken for you. Christ's blood shed for you. They can taste it. They can see that they're a part of the community. And actually in the Passover, when they did the Passover, uh, part of the ritual of the Passover is they'd have the youngest child in the family come and ask the father when they were eating the Passover meal, Dad, what, what does this all mean? And then the father would tell them the story of the Passover. And they'd say, hey, well, we were slaves in Egypt and God delivered us and he brought the plagues and he brought us through the Red Sea. And now we're his people and, and he's drawn us to himself. And, and he was saying, this is who we are, right? And, you know, um, I, I just want to say that for those of you who are parents and you have children in the service, the, the communion, as we take communion, is an important teaching time for you with your children to say this is who we are. We were sinners. God chose our family. And, uh, you know, I, 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 when I was in St. Louis and I wasn't doing the supper every, every week, I, I would do that with my kids. And I, I would tell them, you know, look at all the people around here. You see how they're all eating the bread? That's because Jesus is in all of them. They're, they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. And you're going to eat that same bread, and he's in you too. And you see the body that's broken for you. That's because uh, Jesus' flesh was torn for you to, to forgive your sins. And uh, his, his blood has washed you. And we're, we're part of God's people. And, uh, and I would, you know, I'd say uh, Jesus is coming back, and we're going to have a great meal with him. And I, I remember when I was in St. Louis, uh, you know, I'd have my kids smell the bread, and I'd be like, smell that bread? That's just a little whiff of, of the great feast that we're going to have with, with Jesus when he comes back. And we'll be in his presence and we'll see him with our eyes. And I, I remember one time I was doing that and Lucy took the bread and she said, mmm, smells like Jesus. And uh, I was like, yeah, it smells like Jesus. Like, it smells like Jesus. So that, that, that you know, but uh, tangible earthiness God doesn't want to just speak. He doesn't just want us to have a lecture hall. It, this is not a classroom. It's a feast that we're coming to. And that's how he wants to communicate to us is, um, is, that with the, uh, is through the tangible elements of the supper. And that thing that I'm telling, you know, when I tell Lucy, uh, hey, look at everyone. Who else? See how they're all eating the bread too? And we're eating the bread together? We're all, we're all one in Christ? We're all eating the same, the, the same loaf? That brings us to the fourth uh, thing that we see in this passage uh, about the Lord's Supper is, is also that this, this meal defines our community. This meal defines our community. And, um, you know, it's interesting that in this passage, the Lord's Supper is when Ju Judas is revealed to be the betrayer, right? You know, we don't know that until finally the Lord's Supper comes, and then all of a sudden we find out that, Jesus, uh, that Judas is going to betray Jesus. You see that in verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. 
For the Son of Man goes uh, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And um, Judas' treachery is accentuated by the fact that he's sharing a meal with Jesus, and now he's going to go betray him. And, you know, throughout history in all cultures, meals are always a symbol of peace, being at peace with one another. You know, if you have these warring tribes that have been warring with each other and they want to be at peace with one another, what do they do? They have the chiefs come together and they eat a meal together. And the meal together says we're at peace with one another. And so this, this, um, one of the things that this supper does is it forms us as the body of Christ into a community. It's the thing that marks us out as brothers and sisters in Christ. The Christ is in us and dwelling in us, that we are the body of Christ. And, um, and you know, that's why uh, when we come forward for communion, what do I always say to you? Greet one another as you come forward. This isn't just a meal that we take with Jesus, that we take with one another. It's, it's a meal that we're sharing together. And so it's a communal meal. And, um, you know, one of the things that there's an awkwardness in that as well, though. Because if you're here and uh, let's say you're not a Christian and we say, you know, we want you as a part of our community. This is an open community. Come sing with us, pray, learn the gospel together. And yet when we come to communion, we say this is a table that's just for Christians. And, you know, if some of you maybe... Uh, that's been you, where you're sitting here and then everyone goes and eats communion and there's this kind of sense of being left out, of um, I'm not, I, I don't get to be a part of it. And uh, that's one of the things that, uh, that the table actually does, is it says, it, it shows these are the people of Jesus and, and it gives us a sense of if we're not in, it's supposed to create a sense of discomfort in us. And one of the reasons is because Jesus is wanting to press us to make a decision about him. He's wanting us to say, well, why aren't I one? Why don't I believe in Jesus? And it presses us to make that decision. Should I come to him? And, you know, someone might say, well, isn't that kind of exclusive? You know, you're, you're making this kind of in-group and the out-group, and, you know, shouldn't we just be open to everyone, inviting everyone in? And uh, aren't you going to create this kind of sense of superiority? There's the kind of in-people with Jesus that God loves, and then there's the out-people that, uh, that God doesn't love yet, or they're not a, a part of the club. Um, isn't it going to create a sense of self-righteousness that we're better if you have this kind of in-out group if we mark off the table? I, I think it's actually the opposite. <laughs> because as you look at the, who was eating meals with Jesus all through the gospel, it wasn't the righteous. It, the righteous didn't want to eat with him. They said he was a drunkard and that he was a glutton and that he ate with sinners and tax collectors. It was the, the people who knew they were sinners who came to the table and he welcomed them. He said, come and eat with me. And he said, you're my people. And so it's actually not the people who think they're, they're righteous that, that come to this table. It's the people who know that they're not righteous and that I don't deserve a place. And yet Jesus has paid for my sin. And so he says to the sinners and the unrighteous to come. And that's what it means to become a Christian. The mark of becoming a Christian is when you know that I don't deserve this table. And yet, and yet in Christ, I've been forgiven and I've been welcomed. And so it actually does the opposite. This table forms the community of sinners. It forms the community of people who don't deserve God's grace, and yet he's given to us. And so with thankful hearts, amazed hearts, we come and we say, wow, God has welcomed us, okay? So this table uh, defines the community, and what that does is the fifth thing, we're getting there, uh, is, the, uh, is that now that God has shaped this community, he's defined our community by this table, he also shows us our mission with this table. This table shows us what we're supposed to be doing 
in the world. And now you can see that in verse 24. Look at that again. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves? And what Jesus is saying is that he's making a kingdom of people who become waiters, you know, who wait on tables, who give people food. In the same way that Jesus came here and he gives us this food and he serves us, and he says, just come, come strangers, come in and eat at my table, come in and receive free grace. We become those kinds of people, too, who open up our tables. And, you know, that's a big vision for our church is how do we show Bellingham or Whatcom County uh, the love of Christ? It's quite simple. You open your table, invite your neighbor, invite your coworker into your home and sit down and share a meal with them. And, you know, it doesn't have to be elaborate. Look at Jesus' hospitality to you. <laughs> It's not an elaborate meal. You know, you get a little bit of bread and some wine. You don't have to be a master chef, but you need to be present. Jesus says, I'm just going to give you a little bread and wine, but I'm going to be here. I'm going to be present. And what happens is when you, you know, when you invite someone to your table, what you begin to do is you begin to serve them, right? You know, you get them the food and you bring them, a, you know, you clean, uh, you know, you need some, you want some more water or juice with that? You know, uh, can, can I get you a plate? You want some more food? There's this whole service atmosphere that's created when you're sharing a meal together and actually we just we had some of our neighbors over a few weeks ago and uh, we had just met them actually we'd only met the guy and we were meeting the girl for the first time and uh, as she walked she'd been in our house 30 seconds and we knocked over one of our nice uh, wine glasses and it just shattered all over the floor and it was awkward like hey nice to meet you we just were knocking stuff all over the place and yet you know we're they started helping us clean up the glass, and they're sweeping, and we're talking, and, and actually, it was totally disarming, because they were all of a sudden a part of our home, you know, they're cleaning our house with us, cleaning up the glass, and actually, uh, we had a great night together, and we really connected, and it turns out that breaking a glass all over the floor actually um, broke down barriers and put us at ease with one another and helped us. Now they were serving alongside us, and they were serving us, and we were serving them. And that's what a table does. That's what, what, what sharing a meal does is creates that atmosphere of service to, to one another. And so, um, listen, these are five, already five things. Look at how huge, this, these simple elements. This is the fulfillment of the Passover. It, it's, it's the presence of Jesus. It's a visible gospel. Jesus wants to see wants our children to see tangibly the gospel, and uh, it's defined our community. It shapes our mission. And yet one last thing that I'd, I'll just spend a few minutes on is that this table also stirs up our imaginations. It's supposed to stir up our imagination of what's to come, of what's possible. That, this, that our hope as Christians is that one day Jesus will come back and there's going to be a great feast. Our, our life in the age to come is described as a great feast where we will eat with God. And this is a little foretaste of that. You know, you see that there in verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He will not eat, I'm, I'm not going to, uh, this meal is pointing forward to the kingdom of God. And then he says it again in, down in verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat 
and drink at my table in my kingdom. The way that Jesus describes the kingdom to come, the life to come, our life with God, is as a meal. And, uh, you know, actually, we were, we were having an elder meeting yesterday. Kind of, get, I was getting ready for this sermon and talking through with some of the elders about this. And, uh, actually, Paul Fredette has, has mentioned to me in the past that he, he's uncomfortable with the little cup of uh, wine that you get at the Lord's Supper. He's like, I thought this was supposed to be preparing us for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I get a little bread, piece of bread and a little thimble of wine. You know, how, how is this preparing us for the marriage supper of the Lamb? But he came, you know, I said, ah, I'm not really sure. Uh, but then he, he had read something, and he brought it to our elder meeting, and he said, you know, I read this thing that it's supposed to create in you a sense of longing for more. It's supposed to be just a taste, just a whiff, just a, a, a little glimpse, so that it stirs in you a longing that I will be with God. We're not complete. We're not filled yet. We don't have what we're hoping for yet. And so as we come to the meal, it stirs in our imaginations God's future for us. It stirs in us hope that we will be with God one day and that uh, we're a people that he is redeeming, that he's making into a kingdom, and that this is just a foretaste for us. And so, look at bread and wine, loaded with meaning. Look at how huge huge this is. And so, uh, just with this knowledge, uh, it's a privilege that we, as God's people, get to take this meal with our Lord Jesus. So, let's pray together. Our Lord... We thank you for the supper. We pray that you would give us faith as we eat it, that we would know that you really are present with us and that you eagerly desire to eat with us, for us to sit with you in your presence, that you want us with you, you want us as your children. And I pray that this meal, as we take it week in and week out, would shape us as a community that we would serve and love one another and serve our neighbors and that we would look forward to the day of your coming. We thank you for your abundant grace in Christ's name.